0: So kind, man, Um, what a gift um, to me to be here with you and what encouragement. Uh, I I travel quite a bit and just about every Sunday uh, I end up in the front row of a congregation of people and uh, I uh, sometimes will be sitting there and as the church service is happening, I think to myself, I'm so glad I don't go here. <laughs> you know, and I know that sounds weird, but it's just like uh, such a flip 180 to sit here this morning and to be a part of the first service and the second service and just to be around, just honestly, uh, the hope and the appropriately named church, the hope that's ushered uh, off stage and on stage. Uh, when I got here this morning, uh, I went to the volunteer gathering and um, and just just the, the, the heart of the people and the enthusiasm of the people. Uh, I got to meet John, the worship pastor, and he's just contagious, isn't he? He's got this incredibly genuine smile and, and so gifted, and uh, it's just such an encouragement to be here. And so uh, I, I texted my wife between the services, and I was like, if we ever move to Durham, I found our church, you know? So <laughs> what an incredible gift that you have been. Uh, last night... Uh, pastor Reese picked me up at the airport, and um, he was driving me to the hotel. And the whole drive, the whole drive, he just was talking about you. He was telling me about the congregation and the people that are here and the incredible staff that he gets to, to work and serving you. And and when, when I just got out of the car, I thought, wow, um, for all the times I've sat in a car and heard a pastor just whine. <laughs> You know, it's so encouraging to be around a man who loves the people that God has placed him to serve and lead. And so, man, I'm thankful for you. You encourage me, buddy, and you're blessed to have him. God gets all the glory, but hopefully you know that there's something really special uh, that God is doing in and through uh, this church. And so it's just an honor uh, to be with you. You know, if, if you had told me uh, when I was a kid that I would get to be introduced by a pastor, and come up and grab a microphone uh, later in my life and I would get to talk about God and I would get to um, point people towards God and encourage people to, to just come to God with their everything, I would have laughed at you when I was a little kid because I felt the opposite. If you had told me when I was a kid that I would one day be pointing as an arrow with everything in my life towards the gospel, I would have disagreed with you when I was nine years old because the last thing I thought about God when I was a little kid was that God loves me and he's a God that I love back. I hated God when I was a nine-year-old kid. And I know most nine-year-olds don't think audacious thoughts like that. Most nine-year-olds don't wake up and think, I hate God. Most nine-year-olds think stuff like, I don't know, should I eat this crayon or whatever? But I was nine when I decided I hated God because I just felt like God went first I felt like he hated me. I'm originally from the country of Iran, and when I was nine years old, my country went through a a religious revolution. And when that happened, I just remember the emotion that was driving so much of what I remember as a memory being the memory of fear and hatred and uncertainty. The last thing I would have sung when I was nine years old was "God, I need you." It would have been like "God, I want to get as fast as away as I can away from you." When I was nine years old and the Iranian Revolution happened, I remember those days vividly. I have memories of them. They're like they're scarred, you know. Vivid memories of, of my child. They were traumatic. I remember the very first week of the Iranian Revolution. We lived in an army base as a family. My father was high-ranked in the military. And I remember the very first week going to school. We went to a military school with elementary kids all the way to senior high in the same building. And as soon as we got to school one day, being called out to a school assembly. I made my way to the, to the back of the school with everybody else. And I'll never forget, a soldier was standing in front of our entire student body just weeping. And so it was kind of weird. Like we were just thinking, why is this guy crying? And the school principal was standing there. And she quieted everybody down. And the soldier took out a piece of paper, read the name of three students and asked, mine being one of the first that he read out, and asked us to make our way to the front. And before I could even make my way to the front, I'll never forget, he took a gun out of a holster with his hands shaking, pointed at my head, and quoted the Quran and told me that he was going to end my life. So, you know, we've seen school shootings. We've all been through that kind of tragedy, but can you imagine if it's actually scheduled at first period? Now, let me forget, as the soldier was, was just looking like he was scared enough to actually use the gun, the school principal getting between me and the gun and begging him to come back the next day. Well, for all I care, the brother didn't need to come back, and I remember going home and telling my dad what had happened, and my, my military dad's a tough man. But he just started to cry and he held me and he said, son, I'm sorry. They're just basically trying to make an example out of families like ours. They're really coming after your last name because of who you are, being my son, because of who I am in this position in the army. They're trying to make an example out of us so that opposition won't rise. They're using fear as a tactic to silence people that would push up against them. And as the government's being overthrown, you just happen to be my son and that's why they're after you. But he said, look, they're not going to come after you and they're not going to get you because you're not going back to school. And I'll never forget the last, the next couple of weeks as, as my, my mom and dad would kind of sidebar and, and talk about ways to escape, thinking in the back of my mind that I don't know what we've done to make God so mad, but apparently he's angry at my family and he's sending people to kill us and we need to get away from him. Before we could plan out our escape fully and implement it, soldiers came to our home. I'll never forget in our army base home, soldiers barging in and taking my dad out. And as they were dragging my dad out, Pastor Reese, i remember forget my mom hanging on to the leg of one of the soldiers. And she just kept screaming, just kill him quickly, just kill him quickly. And when you're nine years old, you don't understand why your mom is begging a soldier to kill your dad quickly. They held, we held hands after they took him out. And my mom led us in prayer. And she just kept praying to God that my dad would be killed quickly. And at the end of the prayer, I'll never forget asking my mom mom, why are you saying that? And she said, look, they took your dad's best friend yesterday to the same park that they're taking him to right now. And your dad's best friend was tied to a tree. They took a pair of pliers out. They worked from his fingernails in and took about seven hours to torture him slowly. And we need to pray that he'll be killed quickly. And so when you're nine years old and you're traumatically praying to God, God, can my dad just be killed quickly? The last thing you're thinking is, Lord, I need you. The last thing you need is, that you're singing to God is, where does my help come from? You're like, God, you're the one who's hurting me. You're certainly not the one who's helping me. And I'm not the only one here who's gone through trauma in their life, who's gone through pain in their life, who's gone through hurt in their life. And sometimes when that happens, the obstructed view of our circumstances make us think that God is the one who's actually initiating the trauma and the pain. And he's not really the deliverer of it. And I remember as a little nine-year-old kid thinking, this is all God's fault. But, you know, when you look back at your testimony, isn't it interesting that God is a God who's bigger than the circumstances of your life? My favorite Bible verse is Isaiah 41, 9 and 10. And I just want to read it to you just real quickly, if I could. I just love this promise from God. God says, I took you, I took you from the ends of the earth. And he says, and from his farthest corners I called you. And I said, you are my servant. And then he says this, and he says, and I have chosen you. And I have not rejected you. And then he says, and so do not fear. Why? Why would I not be afraid? Because I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Why? Because I am your God. And then he says, I will strengthen you. Can I just question? just, Just like this morning. Anybody need strength? God says, I'll strengthen you. Anybody need help? God says, I will help you. And then he says, and I will hold you. In my righteous right hand. And isn't it interesting how so many times we think God's given us his wrathful left, even when we deserve it. When God's really given us his righteous right hand. And I look back and I can see how even then when we thought God was really the one hurting us, he's really the one holding us, beloved. Well, that afternoon, my dad wasn't killed and he came back and he said, we're getting out. And my parents started to fast forward as fast as they could. Front burner, this idea of getting out of Iran. And their escape plan eventually became to use my mom as a decoy. But let me explain that because I know that doesn't sound very family values or whatever. My mom had heart issues at this time. And so we leveraged that as our excuse out. My mom and my dad paid all these doctors and these nurses to help us with this plan. And so one afternoon, my mom acted like her heart was bothering her. And this ambulance came and got her, and she had heart issues as a, as a track record, and so it was kind of believable. And these doctors took her in this back room, and they came out and said, she needs bypass surgery immediately. And what she needs, we don't have the technology for here in Iran, and so she needs to be taken immediately to Switzerland for this operation. And we as a family went for support. We bought two-way airline tickets like we were going and coming back. And we got the house sitter like we were going and coming back. And we got the, you know, all these different things planned out. But we weren't really coming back. We were running for our lives. And I remember holding my dad's hand in the airport. And his hand just kept shaking. And he kept saying, if they find out we're escaping, they're going to kill us right here on the spot. But they didn't. Because God's righteous right hand took us out and put us in a plane. And, man, we went up in the air. And five hours later, we landed in Switzerland, and this ambulance got by the plane. And my mom sat up and said, I don't really need to be put in this ambulance. Instead, this was all fabricated. I want to be taken to the American consulate, and we want to become refugees. And at that time, nobody was allowing Iranians into America because people were watching this revolution happen. Some of you older folks remember when the Iranian revolution happened and how 54 Americans were held hostage in the American embassy. And every day people would turn on the TV and the first thing on the news would be they still have our hostages and we got to get them back. And so halfway across the world, everybody saw Iran as the enemy. Iranians were burning the American flag. They were calling America the great Satan. And so here we were, this Iranian family trying to become politically asylum in America, and we just weren't allowed in. And for nine months we tried every way we could and we just kept hitting the wall. For nine months in Europe we tried legally, illegally, we tried every way we could and we just kept hitting the wall until one day after nine months my mom got us together and she said, I've got this idea, uh, this American idea that I wanna try. And she sat us down and she showed us a picture of a white dude with a beard and a mullet, kind of a Duck Dynasty looking guy. And she said, do you guys know who this is? And we said, no. And she said, well, this is Jesus Christ and he's an American. And since we want to go to his country, we ought to ask him since he's America's God to let us into his country. (laughs) And I know some of y'all are laughing, but some of y'all are not laughing. Some of y'all are like, I don't know why everybody's laughing. This ain't funny. Jesus is American. I don't know if you know this, but originally Jesus was not from your neck of the woods. He's more originally from my neck of the way. I don't know if you know this, but in real, he looks more camel dynasty than duck dynasty. But that's for free. All right? but, but anyway, so my mom, she showed us this picture of a, of, a, of a white man with a beard and a mullet. And she was like, we need to pray to him and ask us to let us into this country. And, and isn't it amazing how God is bigger than bad theology? Because we literally held hands and we said out loud, Jesus, please let us into your country. And a week later, after we mentioned his name, miraculously, the doors opened up and we are coming to America. And I remember getting in a plane and thinking, I hate religion because it destroyed my country, but hey, Jesus, thanks for letting us into your country. (laughs) And guess what we do, we move y'all to Texas. We don't move to Erangelis, where all the other Iranians live. We don't move to New York. We, don't, we move to Texas, not just to Texas. We move to Colleen, Texas, where the largest army base in the world is. So can you imagine during the Iranian hostage situation, patriotism on crack, Texans in a military town, and we parachute right in. Can you say wedgie waiting to happen? <laughs> and that was us. I mean, I came from the wrong culture, so I had the wrong haircut, the wrong clothes, the wrong everything. I'm like walking right into elementary school. I'm like, hello. And they're like, you are so going to get beat up today after school. And that was me. And honestly, we had unplugged from one kind of terrorism, physical, and plugged into a whole other kind, emotional. And the weapon of mass destruction in emotional terrorism is just loneliness. Because the only thing that was harder than just being bullied and called things was just being ignored, like you just don't even exist. And I remember for years and years being that kid, we'd come here as refugees, but this didn't feel like a refuge, didn't feel like a safe place to land. For years and years I would watch, you know, where there would be 15 kids that would get birthday invitations with 16 kids in the classroom, knowing I was the one that got ignored. For years and years I was a kid who every day sat by himself and ate his lunch alone and in my mind it was just God's fault that everything had fallen apart. And fast forward a few years later I was sitting in my room and I was crying it was the last day of the summer and I was about to become a freshman in high school. I was crying and 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 my dad heard me and he came in and we just started to talk. He asked me what was going on and I said dad we've been here for years nobody likes me I don't like them it's just not going well. Things have not been really going great for me. And I I said, you know, I don't want to go to high school tomorrow. That just means another level of just being ignored and just that much more complexity of what I've got to navigate through for high school. And my dad felt sorry for me. So he said, come with me. And he put me in the car. And to try to fix it, he drove me to the mall. And he bought me new stuff. You know, he just tried to fix it. And so he bought me new clothes, new haircut, new shoes, new everything. And the very next day, I went to school, went to high school. Same insecure kid on the inside, but I got a little made over on the outside. And I found out what you already know. You don't have to be from Iran to know this. I found out that sometimes people will actually be your friend because of the label that you wear more than the person that you really are. And I just walk right into high school, and I learned how to play the game. I walked right into high school, and I just learned how to dump the right girl before she could dump me. How to be cold to be perceived as cool. How to, how to play the high school game. And you know where it says in the Bible, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? I completely forfeited my soul so that I could gain this not being alone anymore. And by the time I graduated from high school, on paper, it looked like I would gained, but I'd completely sold out. Well, I graduated from high school, but I graduated barely because all my energy in high school had become just about, you know, just being accepted more than even academics. And a couple of months after high school was done, one night I'm in the car right in front of my house, like it's almost midnight, and I've got to go in at midnight with my buddy. And we're sitting there, and it's about two months after high school, and, and to be very honest and frank, we were sharing a, a joint together, some marijuana together, and we're passing this thing back and forth, and, and my buddy looks over at me, and he goes, hey, man, you're really down tonight. Like, usually you're the life of the party, and tonight you were just kind of melancholy. He goes, what's wrong with you? And, and I told him, I said, man, uh, tonight I hugged like eight people goodbye. And all our friends are going to this school and this school and this school, and we've got nowhere to be accepted anymore. And we built this whole thing, you know, in high school. And then as soon as we graduated, as soon as we got our cap and gown, it all just kind of faded out. And, and I said, I'm just kind of down thinking about this. And, and my buddy looks over at me and he goes, Well, I've got an idea. He goes, You know, um, uh, you, what you ought to do is you ought to come to church with me tomorrow. And I was surprised he's inviting me to church because he's literally handing me a joint, y'all. You know, he's like, You ought to come to church with me tomorrow. And I'm like. You go to church. And he's like, I'm a Southern Baptist. That's literally what he said. And I know in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, it says that God made the grass and it was good, but that's not what it means, right? So it's a new joke. I'm just trying it out. All right, cool. So so I'm kind of surprised. And I, and I look at him and I said, Really? And, and you know what he said to me? It's, it's an interesting perspective. He said, I go to church sometimes. And he goes, And I know we've never talked about it. He said, But in America, there's this thing called the youth group. And if outside of like high school, the youth group's like the next big social gathering for teenagers. He goes, you ought to come with me tomorrow. And I looked at him and I said, man, I'm not going to church. He said, why not? I said, because I hate religion. I said, when I was a kid, I saw religion destroy my country. I'm kind of bitter at God. I said, you know, I have nothing to do with religion. He goes, aren't you Muslim? I said, we are by heritage, but I'm not really. And I'm like telling him all these things. And instead of giving up, you know what he does? He says, well, let me tell you who's going to be there. And he named the five prettiest girls from my high school. <laughs> And when he got done, I was like, Lord, I need you. I was like, let's go. I was like, I was motivated. Thank you. And I just want to stop. I just want to stop and say, isn't that the way God works? Because the first time I wanted to go to church, it wasn't because I felt like there was a void in my life that could only be filled with God. I was like, she goes there. I want to go there. But God is bigger than intent. You know? Like when the blind man comes to Jesus in the Bible, he's not coming to be a billboard for the renown of God. He's coming because he's blind and wants to see. The first time I went to church, I didn't go because of God. I I went to church because I was my own God. But God was bigger than my reason. And when you invite somebody to church, sometimes they'll come for the wrong way. They'll come for social reasons. They might come for the free food not because Shannon's gonna pre- present the gospel at a ladies' gathering. They might come because they're lonely, but God's bigger than secondary reasons. He's at work. And so I told him, I said, dude, I wanna go. You have motivated me. But there's no way my father will let me go. He goes, what do you mean? I said, my dad is like really anti Christian, you know? And so there's no way on a Sunday morning I'm gonna get up, put on my nice chinos, and go to church, and he's not gonna notice I'm out. So he's gonna ask me, where did you go on a Sunday morning? And, and, you know, it's just kind of hidden in plain sight right there. I'm going to have to tell him church, and he's going to get really angry. And so he goes, well, why don't you ask him? I said, I'm not asking him. He goes, if you don't walk in there and ask him, because I'm going to walk in and tell your dad you're smoking weed, so I felt motivated to ask him. So <laughs> on a Saturday night, just to get my buddy off my back, I walked in the house to ask him. And I'll never forget, I walked down the hallway, and my buddy was standing at the door to make sure, and I knocked on my parents' bedroom door, and I said, Mom and Dad, I'm, I'm sorry to wake you up. It's midnight. I'm home. I'm safe. It's okay. I said, I'm going to ask you a question. Just say no really loud so my friend can hear, so he'll leave me alone. He wants to know if tomorrow I can go with him to a Christian church. But instead of saying no, my dad's quiet for a few seconds, and then he yells really loud from his bed. with Like the door closed. He yells really loud. What is the name of it? (laughs) And I'm shocked because he's asking the name of the church. Well, I didn't know the name of the church, so I looked down the hallway, and my buddy, who's stoned, yells really loud. He goes, Shades Mountain, and as soon as he says the word Shades Mountain, my dad hears that, and he goes, I know those people, and let me tell you why. Because about two weeks before that Saturday night, when I'm standing there asking me if I can go to church, my dad, about two weeks before that, what I didn't know was, had met some people from Shades Mountain. My dad owned this French restaurant. I know it's confusing, but stay with me, all right? He owned this French restaurant. And he was shorthanded about two weeks before one day, during a very heavy lunch rush. And while he was shorthanded, there were these people from this church. John, he was the worship pastor and a few of the people from the worship team that were at this church. And they had seen how he was shorthanded on waitstaff. But instead of complaining about the bad service they were getting, the worship pastor, a guy named Aubrey Edwards, had gotten up, rolled up his sleeves, told everybody else, let's get up and help this man. And they stayed for like two hours and just served him. Then they went back the next day and served him again. Then they went back the next day and served him again. Then they went back the next day and served him again. And they didn't do it out of pity. They just did it. They were like, we love your food. They didn't love, they were coming to help and they served him. And then Aubrey Edwards invited my dad, my military Iranian father, who doesn't even like music, to choir practice. (laughs) And then my dad went to choir practice and at the end of choir practice, Aubrey said, this is my friend, Mr. Nasser. He has a restaurant. If you're going to be in the choir, you're going to be on rotation at his restaurant. And people had signed up, and for two weeks, they would shown up at my dad's restaurant. They called it missions. My dad called it stupid Americans. But God, <laughs> God was at work. And so what I didn't know was, I'm standing there on a Saturday night, and I'm asking him if I can go to church. And what I didn't know was that for two weeks, God's righteous right hand was massaging my father's heart. So on a Saturday night, you know what my dad says? He goes, I know those people. You can go there, but only there. <laughs> the reason I'm telling you all this is because like, my story is not about some Iranian kid that turned out okay. It's about a church that realized that one matters. It's about a church that realized Mr. Nasser is important to God, so he's important to us. This is an individual who needs the, who needs the gospel, and they're probably not gonna come to our church, so the church will go to them. Yeah. It was about a worship pastor, John, who didn't lead worship with a guitar in his hand, but with like a tray of dishes at my dad's restaurant on a Tuesday at his hand. And I'm just telling you, I get to be at your church this Sunday morning because somebody was the church on a Tuesday night at my dad's restaurant, because one matters. The hero of my story, honestly, the hero of my story is a bunch of believers who are believable. It's the essence of one matters. Last night, I walked into my hotel room and graciously, Reese's and your team is so good at hospitality. There was a little basket of like, there was, you know, like um, a bottle of water and stuff. And there was a t-shirt in this little basket of like, welcome, our, thanks, thanks for being our guest. And I opened up the t-shirt and on the sleeve it just said, one matters. And this morning is... As we were talking, I said, hey, what does that say? And Reese was like, I just want to constantly remember and constantly remind our church that, like, as we grow bigger and bigger, we never need to get so big that we lose sight, that we grow by individuals, because every single person matters. And it's not just that the church members matter. As a matter of fact, those who have not become church members yet matter. And we get to be about that. I'm just telling you, that was the essence of my story. So on Sunday morning, I got to go to church. I put on my chinos, I go to this big old church, and as soon as I walked in, it was like, imagine the biggest partier you know showing up on a Sunday morning at your church. And everybody was like, why is he here? And and I was just kind of weird, you know, because uh, I didn't know how to play church culture everybody was walking around saying, bless you. And nobody was sneezing. And everybody had Bibles with their names on them. And I didn't know how to play church culture. And so I go by myself and I sit down. And as soon as I sat down, I saw Larry No walking towards me. And Larry No was this kid from another high school that I'd met before. And he sat down beside me and he was so kind to me. He was so gracious to me. And when the Sunday school lesson was over, Larry looked at me and he said, David, I'm so glad you're here. He made me feel like, like I mattered. And at the end of it, he said to me, he said, David, we got this thing going on tonight, this youth rally going on tonight, and I'd love for you to come to it, but I was full of pride. And even though I had nothing to do, I I was like, I got stuff to do. And you know what he said? He said, it's okay. He goes, if you don't want to come tonight, he goes, we'll come see you. And they had this thing called visitation. (laughs) Lots of people call it harassment. (laughs) And what I didn't know was that 17 teenagers were going to show up at my house that next night. They came in, and they knocked on the door, and they were like, can we just for a few minutes come say hi? And an hour and a half later, they were still in my house, and they were going through all their beaded bracelet with the color beads, you know, and taking the Roman road and sharing to me how, like, I needed the gospel, and I was a sinner in in, in need of a mighty Savior, and that Jesus had come down and lived a perfect life and then died a sinner's death on my behalf. And when they got done with their pitch, and it was a good one, and they said, David, do you want to give your life to Jesus? I looked at them, and I said, it's not going to happen. You know what they said? I said, that's okay. We'll see you next Monday. And the next Monday, they showed up again. And the next Monday after that, they showed up again. And I'm just telling you, we were the Iranians, but we got terrorized by a youth group, (laughs) y'all. Because every Monday, we're like, hi, the Christians are coming. The Christians are coming. And they would come to my house. And every week, they would share the gospel. And every week, it would be the same truth. Maybe a different Bible verse. One week it would be God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. The next week they'd come and say, Jesus said, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. The next week they'd come and say, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Different tr- different ways to bring the same truth in front of me. That God loved me just the way that I was, but he loved me too much to leave me that way. And I'm just telling you, every Monday night, they would show up at my house, and every Sunday, Pastor Reese, they would come to my house, and they would drag me to church. And I say drag me, but I wanted to go. Because I'm just telling you, kindness is a superpower. And love is a magnet. It's it's Romans 2. Romans 2 says, kindness leads to repentance. And one night I was sitting at their church, and the preacher was preaching. And he wasn't cool and hip like Reese. He didn't have that accent and the cool camo jacket. You know, this was old school preacher, comb over, King James only, sweating out of glands that don't even exist on the human body. But he was anointed. And he got done preaching the gospel, and he gave an invitation. I'll never forget this old school preacher gave an invitation. He said, if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want you to come here to the front. And people started hitting the aisles and coming to the front. And I remember sitting there and thinking, man, these Christians are starting to get to me. It was the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but when you're lost, you don't think of it that way. And I thought, man, this is starting to really get to me. And so during the invitation, while everybody else was hitting the aisle and coming forward, I'll never forget, I I hit the aisle and I went the other way. And I thought, I'm not coming back. I got to call these people and tell them they're not even allowed to come to my house on Monday night. And I drove home and I walked into my house to try to get away from it all. But God's presence was thicker in my house. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 139 where he says, where can I go from your presence, O oh Lord? And when you're lost, the omnipresence of God is a nuisance, y'all. And I walked into my house and the presence of God was thicker in my house than anywhere. And I was alone. My parents were out of town. They were coming in later. And I walked in my house and in my room. I'm just telling you for the next two hours, I just kept thinking about all the conversations we'd had. And finally, I just hit one knee. And I said, Jesus, I know you're real. It sounds like these people are not interested in making me religious. Sounds like they hate religion as much as I hate religion. (laughs) They're not interested in religion. They're interested in redemption. And I said, I know you're real and I just want you to be real in me. I was 18 and two months old the night, that at midnight, God just saved me. I love what Paul says, you know, in um, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the he, says, he says, the life that I live in the body, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ditto. God saved me. The old me died. A whole new me was born again. I didn't understand what all was happening. I just remember closing my eyes that night and going, Jesus, I know you're real. Just be real to me. I know you're God. I just want you to be my God. I'm in. My parents were out of town. They came in a couple hours later, and I told them what all had happened, and uh they instantly became very devout Muslims. <laughs> and two weeks later, they, they kicked me out of the house for becoming a Christian. And I moved in with six guys that lived in a one-bedroom apartment, <laughs> disowned by my parents. And five months after I was a Christian, one night, my sister called me on the phone weeping. And through Campus Crusade on her campus, uh, she's four years older than me, God saved my sister. Then five months after that, my mom called me one night on the phone screaming. She was like, tonight I become Christian. I'm like, why are you yelling? She goes, I want your father to hear because he's not kicking me nowhere. That's how she rolled. My mom got me. <laughs> and then five months later, my dad did not become a Christian. And five months after that, my dad did not become a Christian. And it wasn't because my mom wasn't trying. She was putting Bible verses in his food, and his Rogaine, everything, y'all. <laughs> and two and a half years went by. And then God saved my dad. And one by one, one by one. One by one, I've seen how one matters. And one by one, I've seen the power of just people showing up. And just being graceful, grace-ciousness. And so people always hear my story, and they always go, boy, it's crazy what all God did. And I go, yeah, it's just a bunch of people who just, as believers, decided we're just going to love somebody. And I just love that the spirit of this body right here is so poised for that. And the season that you're in, Christmas season, is so set up for your greatest hour. The question that I have for you is like who's the David Nasser in your neighborhood that on paper you look at and go that guy would never come to church and you have no idea you have no idea how lonely people are and they just need you to just show up and say you matter you matter Can I get you to pray with me just where we are Listen maybe you're hearing this today and honestly You hear my I once was lost, now I'm found, and and you don't know him. You hear my testimony, but you have an I once was lost, but I go to church. Maybe you have a lot of churchianity, but not Christianity. And the first thing I want to ask you is maybe the reason you don't care about showing the grace of God to people is because it's never been received in your own spirit. Maybe you're religious. And it's always been about doing. And you've not found redemption, which is really about trusting. It's about being. Maybe today, what greater weekend than Thanksgiving weekend? God is bringing you home. How crazy would it be that God would send a missionary from Iran to Durham to ask you to come to the foot of the cross, and the end of yourself, and so I'm no longer interested in religion, I want him. But maybe today, that's not you, you know him. And as you hear me share my story, it reminds you of the hour you first believed. As you hear me tell you about the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, you go, David, I'm not from Iran, but man, we've got the same hero. We got the same hero. And maybe today God's reminding you of the power of you just sitting at a restaurant with somebody and just telling people, boasting on the cross about how you were one that mattered to God and how God showed up in the circumstances of your life. Honestly, maybe today you're just thinking about that new neighbor that just moved in to your neighborhood. Or that coworker who just got the job and their cubicle is now next to you? Or that classmate that just showed up and really needs a friend? Or that lady in your neighborhood who's going through the worst divorce ever and just needs a, a friend? And you're reminded of the David Nasser in, in your neck of the woods that God has placed you for such a moment as this to be the voice, to be the testimony of encouragement to them. So wherever you are in that, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you, God, that what you do in us, you allow us to tell of your wondrous works. And I pray that people today, even in this moment, are just filled with the gratitude, God, not because this is Thanksgiving weekend, but because we are a grateful people, filled with gratitude, God, for how you showed up in our lives. For such a moment as this, I pray that as we break out of this huddle now, that everyone would say, I have a story to tell. I have. A person to tell it to you, someone who matters. And we pray this in your name. Amen.